Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back, and we welcome in our weekly guest, Bob Nay, from all, about all things Washington, D.C. Bob, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Kevin. We are uh, all dealing with the news that, of the death of Senator Dianne Feinstein of California. Uh, uh-huh. You you, uh, you did not serve with her, but I suspect, as always, you knew her. Tell us about uh-huh. Feinstein. Yeah. I mean, I, I served with her in the Congress. You know, she was in the Senate, and uh, I was in the House. She's been there a long time. But uh, Senator Feinstein was, I think, uh, in her day, because as we know, she had a she had a tough ending, uh, you know, with her health and some issues with cognitive issues. And it was just sad when that happens to somebody. But I think that Senator Feinstein went from where people used to say, oh, she's the left of the left of the left, to somebody that... I think had some practicality to her, and especially when it came to some of the of the intel work. And she kept a high standard there. And the reason I stress that, Kevin, is because if you're on you know certain committees like House Administration or Intel or Ethics Committee, you just got to you know because the issues are so big, you've got to put aside a lot of partisan differences. And I think she was able to do that. Uh, Bob, this sets up. Uh, what is going to be a scramble uh, for that Senate seat? Uh, but before we get to that, does this does this change the power dynamic in the United States Senate in the immediate raw politics way? Well, I, I don't think at this particular point in time because we have the uh, once they get past the funding resolution one way or the other, which the Senate has particularly, by the way, I must give them credit, they've done their job with passing, you know, appropriation bills the House hasn't yet. They are going to go into November, then you've got Christmas. So, you know, you'll have an appointment. Uh, Ironically, I mean, the only, and people, this is like a trivia question, the only position in America that cannot be appointed is the U.S. House. You can't appoint a congressman, but you can appoint the senators. Wow, that's right. So, yeah, isn't that something? I mean, wow. any any position you think of, you can appoint, except the House. So there'll be an appointment, and uh, then uh, you know somebody will be new into that seat. Now, I I don't want to pre-predict is it going to be a temporary appointment. Sometimes they do that; they put a placeholder until they make you know the election process or something. I don't know yet, but uh, I don't think it will have a great. Uh, bearing right now at this point in time on it. I don't think there's going to be any issues where there's, you know, a one vote short situation. And it, yeah, and I, so the the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, will uh, has the power now to appoint someone. And 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 there is another race for the Senate between uh, a Democratic primary between Katie Porter and Adam Schiff and others. Uh, are, are they I, I don't I haven't had the chance to do the reading. Are they running for Feinstein's seat? They well, I think uh, you know what I I don't want to respond because I am not sure. Yeah, I can't even remember uh, who the other senator is from California. <laughs> you know, I I do not think that I cannot remember if Schiff 
was preparing for Feinstein's seat or not. Right. Right. Well, I'm at a loss on that. well, we'll do the research and we'll figure it out. Okay. Um, but it, you, you're right. By rights, it, it's pretty likely that a Republican will not win uh, those the one of those two okay. Senate seats. So the balance mm-hmm. of power in the in the United States Senate pretty much stays the same, mm-hmm. I suspect. Oh, Kevin, I'm, I, I, I'm correcting myself because I they Feinstein, she became ill. But she was not – she was going to retire. So, yes, he would be running for her seat. She was going to retire anyway. Okay. She just was missing, and they wanted her to retire early, and she wouldn't. Yes. So he would – potentially he could get the appointment if he could maneuver it. You mean the governor? No, Schiff could. Oh, Schiff could, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Schiff is running for that seat because Feinstein said she would retire, then she became ill, and then everybody wanted... That's why I was thinking she wasn't retiring. Everybody wanted her to get out early, and she wouldn't. That's right. And he's in a primary race with uh, Katie Porter, uh, who is the famous uh, minivan-driving, whiteboard-holding scourge of all corporate uh, (laughs) uh, CEOs in in Congress. It's California. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's going to be... That's going to be a fascinating, fascinating race. Okay, so, so Bob, where are we with uh, our, our, my daughter-in-law who works at the Library of Congress in Washington? Is she going? Uh, is she coming to work next week? Well, it's almost to the point where if they pass it as we speak, they're not going to make it in time. Now, the Treasury could temporarily juggle, probably. Uh, federal employees, which, by the way, Library of Congress is magnificent. What a place! <laughs> um, it, it's it, it's just I used to oversee it. That was part of my job. It was a wonderful part of my job oh. to oversee the L- Library of Congress. Um, but um, anyway, I didn't mean to divert <laughs> it. I'm so impressed with the library. But <laughs> Me too. Employees would be yeah, all oh, it is. Federal employees would um, be furloughed meaning they would be working and not paid, and then they would catch the pay up with them. So uh, most likely, I mean, I don't think this can go on a long time, so it would be work without pay. They probably mechanically cannot get that together by midnight, which would turn into Sunday. But if they do a deal, if if the Speaker McCarthy gets a deal, it's just going to be a matter of days that the – Freedom Caucus, the Republican Caucus, because this is all internal fights. This is not with Democrats. But the Freedom Caucus would probably only give him three to four days. Then if he kind of does what they want, then they might give him another four or five days. I think that's what we're going to see in lieu of a shutdown. Uh, so is it hyperbole to say, Bob, that that the Freedom Caucus, which is 10 to 15 hard right-wing uh, Republicans, uh, they're running the United States House of Representatives right now. That's correct. They are, because the Speaker surely, you know, isn't. And he's going to have to, at some point in time, make that decision to say, I'm going to do this. If you don't like it, don't vote that way. And if you really don't like it, go ahead and vote me out and vote yourselves out, because that's what you'll be doing for the majority. To to put it into these terms, I think, let's say you have a listener right now that really cares about balancing the nation's budget, which, by the way, I personally care 100 percent 
Um, but let's say somebody's listening to your show and they really believe you need to do it and it hasn't been done and on and on. The question you have to ask yourself in your mind, if you're that person, is this. You know, do you want to keep the majority that's promising, you know, to balance this budget, et cetera, which in this case, you know, is is the Republicans. Do you want to keep them or do you want perfection and you want years of abuse with these budgets to be corrected right now and to heck with the majority or not? And then the Republicans have a circular firing squad. They lose the majority. And guess what? The Democrats are in control. Because if you're if you don't like the Democrats, you have to kind of follow my theory, what I just said. And that's what's going on in the caucus. I think McCarthy, the speaker, is trying to say, listen, let's get something here. Let's get it going. This is out of control. And about 12 members are saying, no, it's going to be severe to the bone right now. We don't care if we lose the majority. And if they lose the majority, guess what? Then they lose everything they actually wanted to do. Oh, that's really fascinating. I Who would have thought we'd ever arrive at a point where people didn't want to make a deal? They'd rather make the point, even at the cost of losing their majority. A member of Congress, uh, I won't say who because it wouldn't be right of me, a member of Congress told me last week, he said that uh, he believes there are people that would prefer to be in the minority to make their point and continue to scream and vote no than to be in the majority and govern when it's difficult. That was his perception. Well, uh, you know what? It makes sense because you know what? It's a lot easier. Uh, you get on, you get on TV uh, and you, you don't have to govern and make the really hard decisions. Exactly. Yeah. Bob, were you ever in the, yeah, that's right. You were in the majority with speaker Gingrich. We we did we did what we called the take you out of the desert forty years right it was forty years Democrat controlled we came in we made Newt the speaker and then uh, uh, did the contract with America uh, we went into a war with Clinton over balancing he blinked we blinked we got a bunch of balanced budgets a yep. bunch meaning five yep and then we had the first balanced budget in generations and then. Uh, Races got a little bit tight because Newt got controversial, and six members said, oh, we're afraid. We better boot Newt out. (laughs) Right. And they did. But Newt stood up and said, hey, we're going to do the balanced budget. We're going to get this going. So that's the way the times were. Yeah, I was never in minority. Never in the minority. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay. Well, Bob Nay, as always, we didn't get to the Biden impeachment, but maybe we can do that next week as it begins to roll out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It's, well, a quick note on it. Um, the the polling, which I'm not a great, you know, live and breathe by polling, but the polling does indicate the vast majority of Americans are like, it's OK to inquire yeah. on this. So, it's you know, there's been enough bad publicity with Hunter that some people are saying they're not saying impeach, but they're saying it's OK to to uh, inquire on it. OK, Bob, thank you very much. And we will see you thank next you. week. Thank you. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we're joined by another Kevin, Kevin McCollum, to talk about his great cover story in this week's Seven Days about the Burlington's long-simmering proposal to heat buildings with wood-fired steam. Kevin McCollum, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Kevin. I called you Kevin McAllister to open the show. I'm so glad you were not on the line, but I got I, I got two it. texts from angry listeners for getting your name wrong. <laughs> 
I like that. My fan base is yeah. correcting you. Yeah, your fan base is texting me. Uh, okay, I'm I'm old enough to remember when we were going to uh, heat all of Burlington and all of UVM uh, with sustainable heat from the McNeil generating plant, uh, all while we took great hikes down in the Intervale. And now uh, we are at a point in our society where some people think of the McNeil generating plant as a climate criminal. Yeah. I mean, times have changed. What a story! What and, and that's the story to me is changing times, and it's pretty recent. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, tell it through. It's t- complicated. It's a complicated story. It's a complicated issue. And but you're right. It, it has evolved dramatically over time. Burlington's long looked at McNeil as a, a great opportunity to find ways to become a green city, city from an energy perspective. And as they push forward with a new version of that project you described, right, more and more climate activists are starting to say, wait a minute, yeah. <laughs> really? Like you're talking about a thing that's 40 years old, like that's old technology. That is not really the latest, greatest climate solution. And you guys just keep going back to that well. Is, is that the really the most creative thing Burlington can come up with? And Burlington keeps coming back with, yeah, it's really good. It's a really good system. We should expand it. And they're just saying, no way. So on one side, you've got the Burlington Electric Department and its uh, boss, Daryl Springer, uh, along with Vermont Gas Systems and Neil Lunderville, uh, if he's still there, I believe he is, uh, yep. that, that want to uh, that, that there's a, I think it's a $42 million project to pipe steam heat to UVM, uh, and the medical center and other buildings, which sounds great. Uh, but then the environmental side points out that you're burning, I don't know, 70 plus tons of, of, uh, wood chips. And, and it, that just doesn't every make sense. Every hour. Every hour. Yeah. That just makes no sense from a climate standpoint. Boy, what a standoff. Right, right. So what I think has changed in recent years is there have been a growing number of climate scientists who say, look, we are in real trouble here, folks. And if we just shift our fossil fuel-based energy consumption onto biomass energy consumption, right? If we turn off the natural gas power plant and, and build a plant that burns trees, (laughs) that's not going to be actually a positive climate solution because the carbon dioxide will no longer be coming up from the natural gas plant, and that's good, but now just as much, if not more, carbon dioxide will instantly be going up into the atmosphere. And yes, it's from trees, and yes, that's better than taking the fossil fuels out of the ground and pumping them into the atmosphere, that if you do that significantly in large volumes, the forests of the earth are just not going to have the capacity to reabsorb all that carbon dioxide as they do in their natural life cycle, right? So so there there is a beauty to 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 what Burlington outlined in the seventies during the yeah. during the uh, the oil crisis to build this. Like look let's rely on our local forests. They give us so many things here in Vermont, right? Uh, they, they give us clean water, and habitat for wildlife, and they give us lumber for building homes and, and all other manner of things. Let's 
allow those forests to help us also generate some electricity. So we don't have to rely on fossil fuels. And it's a great idea. And in theory, it can work, right? If there's enough time for the trees to regrow and everything is done perfectly, <laughs> theoretically, that will all be reabsorbed from the atmosphere. But more and more people are saying, look, we don't have 100 years for those trees to grow back. Yeah, and, and be pumping. And Bill McKibben and other people have pointed this out very eloquently. And so there's a large and growing number of activists who are saying, hell no, we just can't keep doing this. Yeah, yeah, McKibben, you quote in the story. And also my old buddy, City Councilor Gene Bergman, who we, gosh, we worked together at the Free Press a thousand years ago. Uh, he says he's changed his mind on this issue. Uh, yep. Because, you know, Gene's been around forever and, and was, I, I assume was a huge McNeil supporter back in the day. He was. But it's a perfect example of how this argument is changing. That's right. There's two different people in this story, uh, I think, who, who've changed their tune. And I think it's significant, right? You know, you got Jan Schultz. He's the, he's the head of this organization that's been pushing for district energy for decades, right? In, in the city. And he's just looking around himself and saying, wow. I can't justify this anymore. And Gene is another good example of someone who has long said, look, it makes sense to sort of find a way to better use McNeil, use the waste heat, find another way to find a way to sort of use more of this energy instead of wasting so much of it. And now he's come around to the idea that if we put $42 million into McNeil, into this you know, pipeline system that will go up to the hospital and back, that that's just going to, by definition, extend the life of that plant uh, significantly, and we should be going in the opposite direction. We should be looking to wind it down, find real clean energy solutions. And um, so he, he's done an about-face as well. Now, you write that uh, Medical Center President Steve Leffler endorsed the project, although they didn't give you an interview, but he, there is a letter to State Treasurer Mike Pichak supporting the project. Uh, it, it, and But but there, there are so as far as uh, not stringing, uh, laying the pipe from McNeil to the medical center, the the details of that pro, that that public works project are still to be worked out, right? Well, I would say that the details of the project are pretty well drawn up and ready to go. Whether or not the hospital's negotiations with BED and with uh, uh, the gas company, BGS, and the contractor that they've got, that uh, whether those uh, negotiations are going to be nailed down and allow the project to go forward are yet to be determined. But the engineering for how it would work, which is actually quite fascinating, is pretty well designed. These guys, yeah. I mean, they've built district energy systems all around the world, and we would not be building something uh, that's like cutting-edge, technology never tried before. I mean, this has been done multiple places, and there's a company that called Evergreen that has helped the city design it. And that's one of the things that Darren Springer at BED has, has, has noted multiple times. He says, look, this is not just like a hypothetical anymore, guys. This is a real project that has been designed and engineered, and I can go through it real quickly if, if, if you think that's interesting. Sure. Well, please do. I mean, we have one in Montpelier. Yeah. Yeah, you got a chip plant in Montpelier for heating the downtown buildings in Montpelier. Um, and um, that has its detractors as well. But, yeah, um, but yeah so in, 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 McNeil, in McNeil, what will happen is uh, McNeil generates steam, obviously. The steam turns a turbine. That creates uh, electricity. But then most of the heat goes up the stack. And yeah. so one of the confusing things here has been 
you know, people thought maybe they were just going to be using the waste heat for all of the project. And that's not really how it's going to work. McNeil is essentially going to power the hospital as well, because the steam from McNeil, some of it uh, will be taken away out of the building before it hits the turbine and creates electricity, right? Right. They're going to siphon off some of the steam, send it up the hill. Uh, It's going to be very hot. Um, uh, It's going to go through the hospital uh, uh, heating systems, and then it's going to cool as that happens, and it's going to come back down at a lower temperature as water. And then the waste heat from the, from the flue, from the stack, is going to be, uh, they're going to have a special device called a flue gas economizer that basically uses the gases, the hot gases coming up through the stack to warm up that water again and put it into the boiler. So instead of using trees to heat that water up, a, a chunk of that heating process is going to be done, as I understand it, with the gas from, a, from some of the gas from the smokestack. And so so that the reason they're doing that type of a system instead of the water-based system that, uh, that, uh, that others had advocated that would have come all to downtown um, Burlington and hook up like 40 buildings is because the hospital already has steam-generating boilers. It has all the piping. It has all these buildings already heated with steam. And so they weren't going to switch to water, right? I mean, it would have, they'd have to rip everything out and start sure. over. And so the, the the backers of the project say, look, it makes perfect sense. We make steam. They use steam. Let's just make some more steam and sell it to them, right? It's not that difficult. And so the real, the real, the real problem has become both the questions about the uh, climate sustainability of McNeil burning tons and tons and tons of trees on a daily basis, hourly basis. And the cost. Yeah. How do you really recoup your investment if you're going to spend $42 million digging some pipes in the ground? So, so Kevin, what's the bottom line politically? When does this decision get made? So uh, it needs two decisions. More than that, really, but two key ones. One is the hospital has to decide to ink a deal to move forward. And then Darren Springer has to take that deal and all its terms, um, which will be complicated, right? There's going to be multiple uh, – players and there's going to be multiple levels to it, but he's going to then have to take that to the city council and the city council is going to have to sign off on it. On the 10th of October, if there's a deal with the hospital, he goes to a workshop with the city council. They chew on it. They think about it. They try to pick it apart. And if he can get support, then sometime thereafter, the council would have to quickly make a decision to move forward or not. Wow. Uh, Mayor Weinberger has called it a, you know, a go, no go decision uh, that's been long postponed. Yeah. Um, and he says, we're there. If, if we can't make a decision on this or if we can't sign off on it, then we're done. We're not going to keep banging our heads against this wall <laughs> uh, on district energy. We're just going to start with something else. And he won't be around to as mayor to uh, he'll he'll leave that the tough stuff to the next to the next mayor. <laughs> That's the way it's looking. OK, Kevin McCollum. He is the uh, reporter from Seven Days. Great cover story on the issues around climate and around the McNeil Generating Plant and UVM Medical Center and other buildings. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And now, Short Takes, our monthly feature, which focuses on great reads that you won't find on the bestseller lists but are compelling books for your nightstand or kitchen table. 
And as always, we discuss this with publishing Sherpa Mary Bisbee Beek, my friend from out in Portland, Oregon. Welcome. Hi, Kevin. Good morning. It's great to hear your voice. Uh, I think that what I love about our discussion uh, every month is that I get to sit back and just enjoy these books that you have picked out for us. So, so what do we have uh, this month? Well, let's see. I have four more books, um, and I'm going to start with a poetry book, which is called How News Travels. And um, once again, I'm breaking my own rules. This book is fairly new. Um, it should be really easy for the bookstore to order. Um, and it's by Brooklyn poet Judy Katz. Um, she may be Manhattan. Anyway, New York poet Judy right. Katz. Um, Judy's Judy's collection is um, slender but fabulously accessible poems. Um, if any of the listeners are new to poetry, this would be a great book to add to your kitchen table's reading pile because the, the poems are so accessible. Um, I tend to like to read in the kitchen because the light is good and it's a nice little break when I'm moving from one room to another. Um, so I think Judy's work is brilliant, and so does poet Dennis Nursky. He says about her collection, who said, sorry, um, the voice is so alive, often so playful, and again and again you'll find yourself in a dialogue with the unknowable. How News Travels is a stunning book. It's published by Oregon publisher Silverfish Review Press. And if you can't find it in the bookstore, ask them to order it. And better yet, they should order two copies, one for you and one for for the friend that you will inevitably want to share this with. Mary, can I jump in right there? And I just love seeing an Oregon publisher, Silverfish Review Press. It gives me hope that we're not all going to be getting our books for the rest of time from Random House and and the, the, the blob in New York, right? Oh, quite, yeah, absolutely. I mean, since the 70s, the independent press movement has really risen up, and, and it started in the West. Um, I mean, we had books like How to Fix Your Volkswagen from John Muir Press in New Mexico, and we had um, the Whole Earth Catalog, Right. from uh, California publishers. They were playing around with format. All of a sudden, you have oversized books or very small books. And they were really, you know, from that point, they were giving New York a run for their money. New York still has the money, and they offer the authors you know, larger um, advances sometimes. Um, and they t- they... They have the reputation of doing more for a book, but having worked for a little over 40 years in the independent press world, I would argue that. Um, I think that the independents work harder and work longer for their authors. Oh, as somebody who has authors on this show, let me tell you, calling up the Random House Publicity Department to try to get an author on this show is I've completely given up and I directly message the author on Twitter and more often than not, it works. But anyway, we digress. <laughs> yeah, we could do a whole show on that. That's And we will. Okay, next book. <laughs> okay, the next book is, um, it's a book entirely without words. It's a children's book and it's from the wonderful Brooklyn um, publisher called Enchanted Lion Books. 
It's a wordless adventure story about a rabbit and a tree and their surprising friendship and the distance they go to find a place called home. The title is Bunny and Tree. And Bunny and Tree first meet when the tree observes a ferocious wolf threatening the bunny and comes to its protection. From then on, there is a bond of trust between these two unlikely characters. When Bunny convinces Tree that they should take a road trip as Bunny is on a quest to find his bunny friends and he convinces Tree to uproot and see the world. It's completely oh, charming. Fantastic. And and um, the illustrator is um, uh, a fellow by the name of Balant Sasko. And um, he started his career as a photographer and then he turned to painting and illustration. And I'm so happy that he did because this book is, as the publishers call, completely enchanting. Fantastic. Oh, gosh. Okay. I'm going running out and getting that. All right. Okay. The next selection is um, much more serious. Um, it's a left turn into the world of photography and a conversation about documentary photography. Um, I thought of this book when I saw the images of the demonstrations for the climate conversation that went on a couple of weeks ago and the gathering of the UN General Assembly and the return of the Americans that were held captive in Iran for 10 years, um, went to my shelf, and sure enough, there was Through the Lens, which offers the reader <clears throat> a platform to think or rethink the ways that we view the world through images in the news. The arena is that we start within this book as a sophisticated exploration of the role of photography during the early days of COVID, the COVID pandemic and the demonstrations around Black Lives Matter. Two historic moments. It was timely when the book came out in 2021, and the conversation about the importance that photojournalism plays continues to be relevant. It's a follow-up to the author Lauren Walsh's earlier book, Conversations on Conflict Photography, which offers an exploration of the visual documentation of war and the humanitarian crises around the world. Mm. I highly recommend either or both of these books. And Lauren is a person to pay attention to. She's a scholar. She teaches at NYU, and she's often a guest at public venues discussing subjects around photography and especially documentary photography. She's she's a real pistol. I, I like her tremendously. Ooh, a potential guest on this show. Fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Great. And you don't even have to ask, you don't even have to tweet her. You can yeah. just look look up just google her and look her up on her website no that's the other thing i do you just go to the nyu website you look her up and there's her email right there <laughs> and they and she responds absolutely yeah and, or or her or her or her office phone number yeah right so great yeah so the last selection for today is um a novel from someone uh, an author wonderful author in western massachusetts by the name of ellen Mirapol. And um, this is, I think, I believe it's her fifth book. It's called The Lost Women of Azalea Court. And this story will quickly take us all out of summer, if we're not already out, and places in a chilly November morning when 88-year-old Iris Blum goes missing from Azalea Court, which is a small housing development on the grounds of a long-closed state mental hospital. Iris's husband, Dr. Asher Blum, might be involved with Iris's disappearance. His past is dubious enough that their daughter, concerned neighbors, 
and the police detective suspect that Dr. Blum could be at the bottom of this mystery. The book is storytelling at its best. And don't forget, one for you and one for a friend. It's a wonderful book for, and it's a wonderful book for book club conversations. And oh gosh, that should be a British television show immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Or Netflix or or, or Apple. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, okay. You don't have to go far. (laughs) Mary, can we go back to your, uh, the, the, the way you read, you talk about you like to read in the kitchen because the light is good and, and the idea of taking a break right in the middle of the workday, I find that something that I could probably use a little bit of. Well, you know, we all have to get up and move around. So it's good to have a destination that doesn't include meeting head on with the refrigerator. Right. So if there is a book or two around, you can pick that up or, Easier than paying bills, easier than, you know, going out and engaging with a neighbor on the front porch if your office is from your home. Yeah, or the dishwasher. The dishwasher. Um, or well, yeah, the dishwasher doesn't play a big role in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I leave that to other members of the family. Yeah, there you go. But uh, yeah, but a, a, a but a sunlit corner of the kitchen. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it's the, it is the room that has the best natural light in my little, ho- my little house. Yeah. So, um, any other room is dark and as today, you know, looking out, it's just rainy, rainy, rainy. Our winter has started. Oh. Oh Lord. Okay. Please. We, we can't, we're going to leave that to another show as well. Okay. How News Travels by Judy Katz. Bunny and Tree, yeah. uh, the, and then Through the Lens, which is the photography book, and then mm-hmm. the, the last selection is The Lost Women of Azalea Court. That could be, as a nonfiction reader, that could be a novel that I could, that I could do. Yeah, I think you'd really enjoy it, Kevin. Okay. And you can get them. And I wanted to remind your listeners. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say I wanted to remind your listeners that there's the Green Mountain Book Festival this weekend um, in Burlington. And there's I looked through the list of authors that are going to attend, and I didn't recognize a lot of the names, a few of the names. A lot of them are very local. Um, but there's one novelist who's um, now living in Vermont, and um, he he wrote one of my very favorite books. And actually... I think it's um, a favorite book of many, many people called um, A Seat. No, let's see. Hold on. Birds and Birds and Fall. Ah. And it's um, it's a book that we'll talk about further in subsequent months. Okay. And you will be able if and, and we we had the executive director of the festival on the show last week, Rachel Carter. So we talked a lot about this and if you there will be booths there for the first time where you can catch up with our buddy Sam Colber, uh the owner of Rootstock Publishing, which publishes so many local Vermont authors. Yeah, and I think she's got some of the Vermont authors there signing their books. Yeah. Yeah. Green Mountain Book Festival this week. This weekend in Burlington, another reason to go. Well, Mary Bisbee Beak, 
thank you so much. Short takes is such a great feature and, uh, I love the recommendation to buy two copies, one for you and one for a friend. Uh, it might break the bank, but, uh, we'll try to follow your instructions. Terrific. Terrific. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Kevin. Okay. Mary Bisbee Beak, our Thank monthly, you. our monthly feature called Short Takes, uh, and I like to call it the, the place where you can get fabulous books that you won't see on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, or, you know, on some Amazon list. This is, this is, uh, this is under the radar stuff, and these are people who are fabulous authors. So Mary has a pipeline to all of them, and you get the best uh, recommendations right here on Vermont Viewpoint. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis, and in the last couple of minutes of our show for Friday, we'll send you into the weekend by taking a couple of calls. Uh, this turned out to be a very Burlington-centric show, which is... Which is a good thing. We need to focus on Burlington from time to time. But before that, uh, we talk any more about Moreau Weinberger and the, and the, uh, city of Burlington. Let's go to the phones and talk to Ted from Shelburne. Ted, welcome to the show. Good morning and thanks. And speaking of the rest of Vermont, just about every part of it, the Vermont Crafts Council is having sponsoring open studios of artists and craftspeople all over the state. You will see yellow signs at street corners. You can follow them, possibly get juice and cookies, certainly see an interesting person who is dependent upon selling wares that they have made or created themselves. Uh, As I say, it's a statewide thing, and uh, Googling Vermont, Crafts Council will get you to a guide and maps and and your area, your zone, and so forth to take a cruise. And also, when you're talking to Michael Monty, I <laughs> I always think of getting to the beginning of the troubles with almost every trouble that is out of control is starting with children and hoping it can maintain through all of the. Uh, a study of marketing would be in order in a way of how much it has changed in the 90 years of WDEV, for example, uh, and sports as marketing delivery system and so forth. Uh, just And what it is that is education. Education isn't in the classroom. It's in the family home and now on every little screen and so forth. I'll stop there, but those we'll we'll come back to some of those things. But the the yellow signs on street corners, uh, pointing to a, a receptive and open local craft person or artist, would be good for everybody. Thank uh, you. Well, uh, hold on, yes. Ted. I'm on the Vermont Crafts Council uh, website, and thank you for calling because. My favorite, one of my favorite visits, and I don't know if he's on the tour, is my old neighbor, uh, the Romulus Craft Studio in Washington, Vermont. All right. Well, way off maybe, the way off the beaten track. Uh, maybe look him at. I mean, a lot of people are not on it. I was looking at it, and there's nothing really in the vicinity of Shelburne, even though the craft school is here and various things. So, but as I say, just just. Just be aware, there will be another one as the seasons change into spring, but uh, it's it's an interesting group of persons in Vermont who are 
you know, they have housing of some sort and they are making a living of some sort, but it takes all of us. Uh, well, thank you for pointing it out. Open Studio, the Vermont Crafts Council Open Studio this weekend, and I'm looking at everything, Fairfield, Milton, Essex, Jericho, Underhill, Burlington, Reedsboro, Townsend, Bellows Falls. Burrow, everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Warren, Waterbury, Hardwick, Marshville, Lindenville. Uh, there's a craft uh, out of somebody's garage or, or house yeah. that is worth seeing. So Be curious about the yellow signs. And if that fails, do it again in the spring. Thanks again very much. Okay. And roots of empathy is a good thing to be aware of, is how young people can get a social, emotional sense, because everything you look at that's a problem is is touched and misguided currently by that. Uh, <laughs> right. It all starts there. Thank you for the call. Yep. Thanks. Uh he makes a very good point, and uh, he mentioned the word social-emotional uh, education, which is uh, uh, near and dear to my wife's heart because that's that's what she, as a as a parent, coach, and therapist, that's what she focuses on. So I I get I get a dose of that at the dinner table fairly every night. Um, I want to go back to uh, again. You can call me at two four four one seven seven seven. I want to go back to Moreau Weinberger for a second. Uh, Twelve years serving as mayor of City Hall, that's a lot. And uh, he is the only – he's the longest-serving Democratic mayor, I think, in history. Um, he says he takes incredible joy and pride in the work of his administration, and he wanted to thank the people of Burlington. This was his announcement uh, that he will not – that he will not run for re-election um, and as I said, the politicking has already begun, uh, seven days reports, and she actually just reported it on Twitter herself. Vermont Representative Emma Mulvaney-Stanick, who's a progressive from Burlington, she leads the House Progressive Caucus. She posted on Twitter that she is, quote, seriously considering running. I've watched my community struggle to address complex challenges in leadership, fail to rethink our approach. We need to address our community safety housing and opioid crisis together and now this term community safety is clearly the issue and i'll tell you i got a call at 7:30 this morning from a friend of mine in burlington who was just asking me about this issue uh you know the fentanyl problem the drug problem, the addiction problem, the mental health issues, uh, the public safety. It's, 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 it's moved from a law enforcement issue to a community safety issue, a housing issue, and all manner of other discussions. And, uh, read Paula Routley's seven days column, uh, this week because, uh, she says whatever we do is not working. And Michael Monte, one of our guests, uh, is clearly meeting on a weekly basis with uh, his colleagues. So we're going to have more news in this area, and we promise, promise to focus on that issue. That's our show for today. Thanks for your calls. My thanks to our guests, Michael Monte, Bob Nay, Kevin McCollum, and Mary Bisbee-Beak. If you want to be a guest on the show or send me an invi- uh, a suggestion for a topic, send me an email at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Our goal, as always, is to illuminate, inform, and have some fun along the way. The show becomes a podcast at wdevradio.com. Thanks to Danny McGivergan. It comes out almost like 
almost immediately after the show. That's a high bar. I just, I just raised the bar for him. Uh, so you can listen to the rebroadcast, the broadcast of the podcast anytime. You can also listen live to the show on the internet and at AM 550 and all over the FM dial. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at KevinKLS.com where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram if you'd like. My own podcast, Conflict of Interest, examines the issue we deal, issues we deal with on the show. As always, we talk politics, media, and culture, and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me, engineered, and made possible by Danny McGivergan and all the folks at WDEV. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV.